Hello, welcome to Restoring the Experiences of Indigenous College Students, brought to you by the College of Arts and Sciences, the History Department, Ohio State Newark Earthworks Center and its Indigenous Arts and Humanities Grant, and American Indian Studies at The Ohio State University. My name is Lucy Murphy. I'm a professor of history at Ohio State Newark and will be your guest, your host and moderator today. Thank you for joining us. Today, Dr. Shannon Gonzalez Miller will examine the experiences of identity erasure, invisibility, and hypervisibility for urban Indian students who attended a historically and predominantly white public university. She will consider ways the prevailing description of who is native shaped the classroom experiences of the participants in the study. Let's get to know our speaker today. Dr. Shannon Gonzalez Miller is a recent graduate and retiree of The Ohio State University. You may know her from her professional affiliation with the Office of Diversity and Inclusion, where she spent over 30 years working with students to support their academic goals and echo the brilliance and resilience she heard in the stories they shared. She earned all her degrees from Ohio State's College of Education and hum Human Ecologies Department of Teaching and Learning. Her research interests centers on distinguishing the experiences of urban Indian and native college-going students, the generation born in the city, from the enduring educational discourse that favors tribal-centric experiences of students. Her research project sought to examine what can be learned about culturally-centered pedagogies from urban Indian college-going students when their indigenous identities are overlooked or contested in academic learning spaces. Shannon's native story is rooted in her experience as a direct descendant of a parent who lived in an off-reservation state-funded orphanage for his K through 12 years of schooling. She considers her pursuit of a PhD a form of historical trauma response based on her understanding of the significance of remembering, reclaiming, and restoring her indigenous ways of knowing, being, and becoming. She is Southern Ute and holds dear the native proverb, listen with three ears, two on the sides of my head and one in my heart, to bring the heart and mind together. We acknowledge that the Ohio State University occupies the ancestral territory of the Shawnee, Delaware, Miami, and Wyandotte peoples and the people of Fort Ancient Hopewell and Adena cultures. The campuses of the university reside on land ceded in the 1795 Treaty of Greenville. In 1830, the passing of the Federal Indian Removal Act forced the removal of the indigenous peoples from this land. We honor the legacy of these tribal nations and recognize the many diverse indigenous peoples living here today and the generations of scholars yet to arrive. With that introduction, let me mention the plan today. 
Dr. Gonzalez Miller will speak for about 30 minutes and then she will take your questions and we will open things up for discussion. If you are interested in asking a question, please write it in the Q&A function at the bottom of your screen on Zoom. Now, without further ado, let me pass you over to Dr. Shannon Gonzalez Miller, who will take us on an exploration of restoring the experiences of Indigenous college students. Thank you, Lucy. I appreciate that. That was a nice introduction that you offered. Um, I'm going to go ahead and share my screen. Okay. So as Lucy, an honor to be here and um, very appreciative of the opportunity to share my research experience um, for my dissertation. I, just graduated in the in December of 2020. So it's still relatively fresh and, um, but ever in the revising process without question. So um, it's, a, it's a great opportunity to be able to express um, what my findings are and what my learning continues to be. So I want to begin with some acknowledgements. I certainly want to thank the College of Arts and Sciences, um, Dr. Lucy Murphy and Clara Davison, and um, we just went over this, Dr. Nicholas um, Breifogel for the work with me to make sure that this would be a presentation that met the needs of their webinar series and to um, support me in this process. So it's been a a pleasure getting to work with you and getting to know you. Of course, I've known, I've known Lucy for, gosh, I think almost all of my career. So um, she's like a sister to me in terms of being part of the, um, the community that I hold so dear. I also want to acknowledge my faculty committee um, who of course without them certainly wouldn't be at this, at this phase as I still adjust to to my new title of Dr. Gonzalez Miller. Um, so my advisor, Dr. Cynthia Tyson, who is just the most warm and welcoming um, advisor, friend, encourager, um, supporter that a, that a student could have. And my committee consisted of um, Dr. Timothy San Pedro, also in the College of Education, um, Dr. Maurice Stevens in uh, Comparative Studies, and Dr. Candace Stout in um, Art Ed. And so without them, again, all their influences, I think hopefully are present in my research and in this presentation today. So I thank them. And then of course my family, um, which this is dedicated to them. My research is dedicated to them and to their support that they've offered through this long process. Um, by no means was this a traditional process as I, um, both retired and graduated within months of each other. So it was the right time to do everything. And I needed all of the experiences up to this point to be able to produce the manuscript and the manuscripts to come. And so it was through their patience and their love that um, helped me get through um, to the point of completion and then their patience that allowed me to continue on this process. So um, I recognize 
oh, well, I'll actually recognize them in, in just a minute, but I for sure want to point out my daughter, um, City Miller, or her indigenous name, Indigo Gonzalez, who has been, um, I can't even, I don't even have words to describe how supportive she's been um, through this process of me um, taking on this role of being a student and being a full-time employee and what that meant to her life um, and how it impacted her ability to, to, um, to just be, just be a kid or just be a young adult. She often tells, reminds me to put on my mom hat and take off my administrative hat or my, um, or my researcher hat and talk to her like I'm her mom. So I'm acknowledging her today that I want to be mindful of all three of those hats I wear. And I can let go of my work hat, my administrative hat, my higher administrative hat now to become, to focus on her being her mom and support her and her new academic journey that will be getting will be getting hopefully in the fall. She's a great inspiration to me in terms of being just a tremendous intellectual scholar. So my family, um, I get to use my little pointer here. Um, so I wanted to share my family. Um, this is my younger sister, Terry. Um, this is me and my mom, my older sister, Stacy, and this is my father. This picture was taken about um, in, the, in the early 1980s, so quite some time ago, but it reflects the, um, the complexity, I think, of our family. My, my younger brother is missing. I'm not sure where he was. I was thinking about that all night. Where was he at this time? But um, I'm from California. I'm from the Bay Area, from Fremont, California, and this is where this picture was taken. Um, this picture over here shows my father with, with, I'm not sure who these people are. I think it's a class reunion, potentially a high school class reunion, but I'm not 100% sure that's what the picture is. It, we found this picture or was given to us after his passing. Um, and I just find it so intriguing of how I now see that he looks um, much more indigenous than I ever noticed when he was, when I was younger. Um, when I was younger, he was just my dad. But now it makes sense to me some of the challenges that he faced with being a native person um, and, the, and all that goes with that. And I'll explain more about that in a minute. So to clarify some terminology, um, I wanted to talk a little bit about how I use the term indigenous. So indigenous meaning original to an area or to a land or a region, but which is a common way in which it might be used. But for me, it's more than a name. It's more than a noun. Um, I do not refer to myself as indigenous. I refer to myself as native because that's the way I was raised. Um, that's the term that I grew up with. We always knew we were native. When I say we, I mean my siblings. Um, but I use the term indigenous in terms of my indigenous ways of knowing and being. That's the way in which I in, apply it. And in this sense, I'm referring to my personal and political beliefs and choices. And I make um, sense out of this from a logic that is informed by my lived experiences, my education, um, my political, spiritual, and environmental beliefs. 
Native American is a term that is commonly used as a kind of an overarching noun. And I use that interchangeably sometimes with American Indian, although I rarely use that term American Indian only in literature if I have to do that, if it shows up in writing, um, because that is a government description for Native people. Um, Native Americans being those born, Native people born in the United States. And urban Indian is um, one that I've been using recently. And of course, it's what my research is based in, based on. And um, it is those uh, Native people that were born in the city or not on reservations. So what inspired me? I wanted to begin with the inspirations for my research. Um, it's been an ongoing, I'm gonna say ongoing again, because I've been at this for a long time. It's been an ongoing inspiration thing, something I wanted to do for quite some time. And Thomas King's quote from his, um, says that you're not the Indian I had in mind. And I encountered that much like he did over the course of my life that I know that I'm not meeting the expectations of what many people have, of what it means to be native when they meet me. So physically my phenotype does not necessarily match that. Um, obviously I look, maybe obvious to you, but I look more like my mother than I do my father. Um, nonetheless, um, I wanted to, to talk about my connection to my identity and how that inspired me. So let me start with the picture. This picture is me sitting under the tree taken at the um, Colorado Children's Home for Dependent and Neglected Children in Denver, Colorado. When I visited in, on March 25th in 2018, um, this picture is on the grounds of, was taken on the grounds of the place, the residential school or the orphanage where my father was raised. It was a place that I had visited once before when I was about 12 or 13. We didn't actually get out of the car and get on the grounds because when we drove up to the place, my father took us there. We drove from California to Colorado, to Denver. He wanted to show us this place where he was raised. He talked about it often and, and interestingly in a very positive way. Um, in terms of um, supporting him. That doesn't mean that it wasn't traumatic because it was, but just in terms of the way he verbalized it, which I think was due to his training and the way he was taught to, um, to talk about his experience was that it was positive. Um, so here I am at this place sitting under a tree that my daughter suggested that I sit under as she believed that this was a place where my father sat, where he was, when he was um, on the ground. So my father was there from age five or six, we're not sure, until he graduated from high school. Um, so till age 18 and went into the military. So he really did spend all of his schooling years here in this space. Um, so I like that it's a kind of a reflective, I'm reflecting on what my daughter was telling me about what she thought happened at this place in terms of her understanding in a kind of a spiritual way and what was going on. Um, so this connects, this is a grounding space for my Southern youth identity and my, um, and our family's inability to be enrolled in our tribe. 
So this experience by my father and his siblings living here meant that he was not enrolled in his tribe. And so I, we were unable and still have been unable to make that connection. Um, so I often am concerned about identifying a Southern youth because sometimes that leads to more questions. So specifically regarding my research, where this showed up for me most often and where I really grappled with it was in the classroom. Um, so over the latter part of my academic journey, I struggled with whether I would include my Southern youth identity when introducing myself in my classes. And why would that be important, you might ask? Well, when the question came up, well, what is your research about? knowing that it was going to be about include my lived experience and my family's experience, it was a question of how could I, how could I tell that story without identifying? Um, and so it was really a place of tension for me for actually all the way up until my, the last class that I have. So my classroom experience not only influenced my interest in my research area, but also served as the reminder of the many times that I spent defending or denying my lived experiences. And this involved determining what I would share when I was in these spaces, when I would share, how much I would share, with who, and most importantly, how I would protect my family story. That was my primary goal. So I really had to make a conscious decision. I remember thinking about it before, you know, several days before class, because I knew it was coming. And so I would spend time trying to figure out how I was feeling, where I was in my research process, what did I feel comfortable saying, what might I encounter, um, what questions what was, what questions would I face and was I ready to answer? So I want to spend a little bit more time explaining my time here on the um, grounds of this of this orphanage or this, um, the Colorado State Home for Dependent Neglected Children. It's a story that I think I'll write later, but I, I think it, it's very meaningful to me in terms of my own, I, my own identity, sense of identity. So the, um, the picture with the smokestack is um, important and symbolic and, and it's extremely important to me because I was, I was, as I was on the grounds, I called my sister my younger sister, Terry, and told her where we were. And she asked me, what did I see? Well, what could I see while I was on the ground? And I told her and I described this picture that there was a um, this smokestack, which behind it was a golf course, not surprising. And then behind that were the Rocky Mountains. And she said, do you remember the stories that dad told us about climbing that smokestack? And I said, no. And she went on to tell me, um, remember the story, and it was a funny story, and we laughed. And as she told me, I said, oh, gosh, I now I do remember, because I remember laughing as my dad told the story. Um, so it's, it's very symbolic to me in terms of grounding, literally grounding myself in the space. Um, the picture on below is the administration building. That's what it has on the signage. It's now part of, the, of Denver University. And so that's additional signage. We were there on the weekend, so I was unable to go in, but at some point I would like to revisit and go in the building just to get a sense of, of what's in there, what's changed and maybe what's familiar. 
the smaller building, the picture of the smaller building is where we began, is, is essentially where we landed after we um, decided this was the place. We drove around for quite some time and we said, this has to be the place. This is, this is, the, this is, the, um, this is the orphanage, as my dad referred it to, or the residential school. And so I was sitting in our rented SUV looking at this building and um, with my daughter who was in the car with me and a friend of hers. And someone pulled up and pulled into the parking lot to the left. And I said, I'm gonna get out and ask that person questions about this building if I feel comfortable. And just as I, before I even opened the door, that person had gotten out of the, his car and started to walk towards me. I said, oh, I'm getting out to ask him what this building is. And so um, we approached each other and I introduced myself and asked him what the building was. And he shared with me that it is the Denver police SWAT training, the building that the Denver police uses for their SWAT training. But on, you can't see on the logo up above, um, I lost my pointer, oh no, it's there. Um, up here, it says, I can't remember the, the name here, but it's a gymnasium. So it originally was the gymnasium for the, for the orphanage, for the, for the children. So I asked him if he knew what the building was before it was occupied or owned by the Denver police. And he said, yeah, I think, it, I, think I heard the story. The story goes that it was an orphanage. And I said, yeah, that's my understanding as well. And my father was, um, lived here for his years of schooling. And I asked him if I could go in and he took me in and allowed me to walk through as much as I wanted, spend as much time as I wanted in there. So it was um, a fascinating experience. I didn't take any pictures inside. I just wanted to feel it and um, just be there at least for the first time. And hopefully I'll be able to go back and, and do some more research there. I'm not sure if it's, of course that was 2018, so I'm not sure what's going on now in 2021, but part of my journey, I needed to do that. I needed to be there in order to know that I could tell the stories that I was going to tell because I didn't necessarily have permission from my father to tell stories, and I, but I needed to make them my own. I needed to think about how um, this was part of my story. But nonetheless, talking about residential schools, um, those of you that were available or listened to Dr. Jacobs presentation, she talked about residential schools as well. I like this, I like this description in particular, um, that the goal of residential schools is we instill in them, them meeting indigenous children, a pronounced distaste for native lives so that they will be humiliated when reminded of their origin. When they graduate from our institution, the children will have lost everything native except their blood. Um, so I resonate deeply with this. This is part of my father's trauma um, in his own, his own self-image was quite troubling for him. And um, I love that the notion that they would have lost everything except their blood. Well, this bishop was wrong. <laughs> we retained our stories. So part of the legacy is I shift from telling my father's story and my place in the story. I really do want to bring myself into the story and what was the legacy of my father's experience and being a direct descendant of, of a residential school survivor. And um, these pictures are, are meaningful to me in terms of the one of the experiences and the stories that my father told about having his head shaved or deloused 
when he first arrived at the orphanage, um, which is a common story for, for students that arrive or children that arrive in these spaces, um, that their hair is changed. Again, the humiliation part is important for this because hair is very is sacred and very important to Native people, to some Native people, most Native people. And so to have your hair cut is traumatic. It's mostly, most of the times hair is cut for ceremonial reasons. And so it, it was a distinction to, to make the change, to make the shift for being Native in the civilizing process. So the picture above, I wanted to cite the source. It's important that we show pictures when we show pictures of Native people that we cite the source. So the picture is from the, um, where the children are. It's a webpage and a, and a campaign or foundation in Canada. And the bottom picture is from one of my uh, most favorite documentaries on boarding school. So if you have time and you're interested, it's, it's very well done. And I in particular like the close-up picture of these young girls. And this is the reason why. So thinking of these young girls in this picture who I unfortunately don't know their names. Here is me and my younger sister um, who surprisingly in my researcher lens now look uh, very similar to these young girls. When we were younger or even as um, when we were younger, I hated my hair being short like this because in the mid 60s, in the mid 60s, this was not the hairstyle. So my sister and I were, we didn't have an option. This is what my dad said our hair was to look like. I don't recall my mother having a um, say in this. She was the one that cut our hair. And when we got a little bit older, like in our 20s and 30s, we used to tease my mom about the great job or not so great job she did in cutting our hair. And that was really the source of the stories from the pictures. But later on now, I've learned that maybe it actually was my father um, suggesting that this would be the best way for his children to, to, um, to represent themselves. And the children in the school desk connects to my school pictures. So I believe this is a first or second grade picture and then a third grade picture of me again, having to endure now what I consider endure this hairstyle up until about sixth grade where I pleaded, pleaded with my father to allow me to let my hair grow. Um, and so my school pictures do show that, um, that progress that my hair every year got longer and longer until I was in high school. And then it was in the seventies and it was reflective of the traditional long and straight hair of, um, of other people during that time. It, one of the challenges that I had during this was people, um, even though the style for older males was to have long hair, confused me as a boy, or I was teased as being a boy with the short hair. So it was really um, problematic for me, but I understand why. Now I understand why and have worked through that. So moving down the funnel and kind of narrowing and focusing in on my research, um, so stepping into this research space, I wondered, you know, hanging on to the story or thinking about the stories that I had and the story that I wanted to tell and the research I wanted to produce is what sense of agency was available to me when I talked about the naming of my pain and the naming of myself. So naming of myself as a, um, as a native person, as a, um, as a Southern youth not enrolled and then the pain stories, um, as I learned from scholars that we needed to be careful about telling those pain stories. And it 
Our story was more than that. But how could I, what would I do with that? Because it was, it was hurtful sometimes for me to tell the pain stories and receive the reaction that I, that I did. Not hurtful, that's the wrong word. It was, um, it was, it touched me, it moved me. I felt bad. I felt guilty that I had shared a pain story that may have made others feel bad um, about the circumstances that happened. So I, um, I often got in my head a lot about it. Um, but also then thinking about that and, and problematizing that even a little bit, I wondered if my pursuit of my PhD was a form of historical trauma response. So um, still, still something I'm questioning and still something that I will probably write about later. So what are the issues then that were in the research or what are the issues that I was trying to address very directly? Um, so I had these big kind of, you know, lived experiences um, in terms of my own education being a challenge, my father's education, um, my daughter's education. Um, and so what was I gonna sp specifically focus on? So when I thought about the, the discord, the contention, you know, what was in the disunity, what was the clutter, what was the, um, the divergent points. And those came up in, um, from, I learned from Tommy Orange in, in his novel, um, There, There, and from other scholars that the matters of urban Indian meeting non-reservation, indigenous people or indigenous peoples born in the city have largely been overlooked in the um, educational discourse. Um, Sandy Grande talks about that in her book, um, Red Pedagogy. But and more, what's more commonly found are the ethnographic studies that are tribal-centric or site-specific. So meaning the studies of, a native, of native people by usually non-native scholars. So those the researchers that are out in the field or maybe on reservations that are studying people. So those are the ethnographic studies, studying behavior. So that's the more, that was more common in the scholarship. And adding to the discord and the incongruence is the notion that two thirds of, this, of those identifying as Native Americans live in the cities, but yet the reservation Indian stereotype unmistakably dominates popular culture, and leaving the, which leaves the urban Indian as an invisible majority. So a final or another interest was um, that I needed to address and thought it was important to address was my interest in understanding the underpinnings of the persistent erasure narrative of indigenous peoples, especially in textbooks or in, and in the classroom. Um, I was very much interested in that. And I entered into the research space wanting to contribute to the scholarship of indigenous scholars, existing indigenous scholars who question colonialist determinism about who decides who is Native American. So related to that erasure, related to, um, related to erasing the story, connected to that is a decision about who is Native American and who is important. So that was also my interest. The researchers, the scholars that influenced, that had a significant influence on me on my research are uh, Brian Brayboy and Dr. San Pedro. This is Brian Brayboy visited Ohio State for an event that was co-hosted by the Office of Diversity and Inclusion and the College of Education. So Dr. Kinlock at the time was a faculty member in the College of Education and um, she's um, supported us in bringing Dr. Brayboy here to campus. And Dr. Brayboy's work 
um, he did a, a study on students at, that attended the Ivy League schools. And his, his research, his, his um, story in the study there was very much one that I wanted to replicate at a, at a research one institution, at a public institution. So he was very influential. And also his tribal critical race theory was very influential in me being able to move from a critical race theory to a tribal critical race theory, which he extends, he extends the critical race theory to talk about um, things that are important in terms of indigenous ways of knowing around relationships and storying. And Dr. San Pedro's scholarship in particular about troubling what it means to be Native American, that was very, or, um, yeah, Native American or indigenous, that was very helpful in helping me to unpack the complexity of it and feeling comfortable challenging it and saying, instead of answering the question of who you are, we can trouble the question and say, um, ask, you know, about, well, tell me more about who you are. And then we can find a place in which we can um, get to know each other. So, so I had these ideas that I wanted to research and, um, but for what purpose, what would be the motivation to do this? It was more than just writing a story. I didn't have to do a, a dissertation. I could have written a book or wrote an article um, with a master's degree. I didn't have to necessarily step into the dissertating space, the research space, but I wanted to do that. And my reason for doing that, my motivation for um, pursuing the study was my desire to privilege the experiences of urban Indian students, college-going students, based on my experience of not finding the pervasive, um, fitting in the pervasive tribal-centric narrative, therefore unable to meet the expectations um, held by others of what it means to be Native American. And I was committed to developing a study that perhaps would benefit the participants uh, or the indigenous community and the participants um, that were part of my research. So that was my goal. That was my, that was my motivation. That was my, what I wanted to give back. So my grand research question then developed over time. And that was what can be learned about culturally centered pedagogical practices from urban Indian college going students when their native identities are overlooked in classroom spaces. Our research project was um, based in uh, my theory in terms of my project was grounded in the tribal critical race theory, as I mentioned. My methodology was indigenous research methodology to allow for me to bring in the stories of the urban college going students. And my method was virtual indigenous, was a virtual indigenous talking circle. I had planned to do a talking circles to host talking circles in person on campus, but then the pandemic hit. So we held our um, talking circle virtually just as campus closed or just after campus closed, probably the week after campus closed. So part of my research talks about what it was like to, um, to host a virtual conversation, which now is kind of a mute issue because everybody understands what it's like. Um, so thinking about story and the importance of story and what is story, because I talk about in this title about restoring. So it's important to kind of understand st what story is or what story means to me and my understanding of it. So I like this definition that Leslie Marmon Silco um, has, and she writes that for those accustomed to being taken from point A to B to C in a story, her presentations um, or her particular presentation that she was writing about may have been difficult to follow. And sometimes I think my stories are difficult to follow. 
um, as well, because they're not necessarily from point A to point B to point C. Instead, stories can be like a spider web where many threads radiate from the center where the story begins, crisscrossing over one another through as the stories emerge. And as with the web, the structure unfolds as it is made. So the stories create the web, create the connections, create the relationships, um, and then create a bigger story that we sometimes are restoring, telling each other's stories um, to other audiences in different spaces as their stories, the stories that I hear become my story as well. So the story that I heard from my father becomes my story and the stories that I part from their uh, participants became part of my story as well. And in this structure that's unfolding, we're listening hopefully and trusting that the meaning will unfold and emerge. So, but that is up to the story listener to make meaning of the story that's the stories that are being told or shared. So I wanna just break that up a little bit more or, or dive a little bit deeper into it and talk about types and elements of story, just to make a distinction between um, in a very broad and general way, indigenous storytelling and non-indigenous storytelling. So when we talk about indigenous stories, we talk about in terms of type, we're talking about personal narrative or of place, um, happenings and experiences and oral histories. And the elements are, which usually shows up in the stories, there can be a lot of symbolism, they're interpretive, and they transcend time. For non-indigenous stories, they typically are exploratory. This would be what much of our Western training is about in terms of how we produce stories. Um, so exploratory and exploratory stories are to understand an unknown concept. They're descriptive, they document a concept and they're explanatory. They're explaining patterns and relationships. So I wanna talk briefly about the data collection process and what that indigenous talking circle, that virtual talking circle was like. So um, the participants from our research understood what the process would be and how their stories would be protected as unlike interviews where it might be one-on-one, -on -one, this would be a time where we would come together and hear each other's stories and how would, we, how would we care for each other in the space and then care for each other's stories that we were about to hear. Um, so um, our, our, my participants, the participants turned to storytellers. I felt uncomfortable using the academic term participant and then shifted in my writing when I got to this point to talk about the data collection to storytellers. So, so the storytellers um, were eager to share their stories. They had, based on indigenous uh, research methodology, knew each other and we all were in relationships. So I was part of this community. We had strong relationship, we knew each other well, and I became a storyteller as well, um, sharing my story in connection to the questions that were posed to the, to the uh, storytellers. My study questions, specifically the ones that were posed to the students or to the storytellers were um, what assumptions need to be challenged in our thinking about what it means to be urban or what urban Indian means. Um, and what specific perceptions about pedagogical practices stand out for urban Indian students at predominantly white and historically um, instruct institutions? And what lessons about culturally centered pedagogical practice can be learned from urban Indian students? It was very important to me that we weren't looking at performance of urban Indian students, that I really was looking at the pedagogical practices, that was my focus, is what needed to change around that and what could 
we learn from the students that experienced um, what their experiences were in the classroom. How did that inform, how could that inform the practices of uh, culturally centered pedagogical ways of teaching? So quickly moving into the, my findings. Um, the first finding was um, troubling the urban Indian uh, definition. I accepted the term, it made sense to me based on primarily on the fact that Tommy Orange who used the term in his book, There There, was from the same place I was. So he's from the Oakland area, the Bay Area. And so I connected deeply to his to the visuals that he used and the way he described urban Indian as one being born in the city um, where there's buildings and concrete um, and we lose our connection to the mountains and to the water um, because we're raised in this kind of concrete jungle. And I recognized quickly that the question contained presumptions that reflected my acceptance, not the storyteller, my acceptance of the definition and not the storytellers. Um, their, responses, their responses left no doubt about the storytellers disconnect and resistance to Orange's definition and characterization of urban Indian. As such, their responses to the question turned into problematizing what was deemed to be romanticizing, Tommy Orange was romanticizing the city, a romanticization of the city and a complete disregard for the destruction of the sacred life-giving and culturally sustaining land upon which the cities were built very important distinction, something I had not considered prior to having this conversation. So the storytellers talked about the distinction between urban versus reservation Indian, which is uh, one of the stories in particular talked about the distinction for him between urban Indian and reservation Indian. And he said that he was often considered as inauthentic or not a real Indian. He said, you're not connected to your um, he said, he said you're, you're not connected to your culture, um, therefore you shouldn't have an opinion on what the issues are around Native, about what Native issues are. He said, I heard insults like cloud chaser because you didn't grow up on a reservation. You're only authentic if you grow up on the res. If you didn't grow up on the res, you should not talk about Native issues. Well, I think that it's important for urban natives to not speak on res issues because we don't understand these issues. I think that it gets easily conflated into don't talk about native issues at all because you don't understand. So my second finding was a student as teacher. So thinking about in the classroom, what were the challenges that the storytellers faced? Um, the notion of student as teacher was the most common outcome when challenges with or about their identities were presented, their ind indigeneity was presented. To be clear though, the student, student as teacher was not a role the storytellers wanted or welcomed. Instead, student as teacher left the storytellers grappling with three primary concerns. The tension to correct incorrect historical inferences and references about native people, the hardship of being invisible as an indigenous person without becoming the teacher uh, for the class on all things native and the possibility if they did become the teacher of creating openings for questions about their nativeness. So it was something that they struggled with quite a bit 
And one of the stories talked, one of the storytellers talked about her encounters with um, people asking her about sports mascots. And she said she grew up in a large metropolitan city where she um, asked what her thoughts on mascots were. And she said she didn't even know she was entitled to an opinion, um, assuming that we all had thoughts on those things was putting, was putting her on the spot that she would just know about mascots. Move to this last one quickly. Um, so my last finding was invisibility as a survival strategy. Um, and invisibility, as Brave Boy describes, is a self-imposed strategy to minimize being observed by the dominant population. The findings for this project suggest that we use similar strategies when negotiating our learning spaces. For instance, observation, intuition, and assessment were used to determine what would be revealed about our identity and learning spaces. This strategy informed the degree of invisibility or visibility related to, to our identities um, that would be revealed for the purpose of minimizing emotions, our own emotions of anger, frustration from the experience with erasure and misinformation, while um, also managing fatigue over the curiosity or guilt by native, non-native, about native things from non-native people. So uh, one of the quotes from the research is, one of the biggest things I noticed when talking about Native identity is it depends on who you trust. I found no reason to talk to professors with whom I knew I would not have a relationship with. So he was no question that he wasn't going to, that he was not going to share who he was, his identity. So the last research finding um, that I want to share is um, uh, one of the storytellers who talked about a professor who was in an indigenous theme, she had an indigenous theme class. And um, she took the initiative to meet the professor before to get the weirdness out of the way of introducing herself. Um, and during the meeting she shared, she went ahead and shared her tribal affiliation and some of, the, um, some of her story. And much to her surprise, the professor asked if there was anything she wanted to learn that was not included in the syllabus. And if so, he promised to provide that information for her. She said that she felt welcomed by this professor because she knew her native, her native history was not going to be um, told to her. Instead, the professor's adaptability built a sense of trust in a space where her knowledge about native traditions and history were honored. In other words, a shift from the professor telling stories to the professor hearing stories and bringing them into the topic of the day or week created space for the students' stories to serve as a learning resource for the class and for the students to observe their professor connecting their stories to, to, each and, to each other and to the topics, the course of the topics, the topics of the course. So to end the future research is I'm interested in um, what, uh, what Carter's article talks about, what blended bodies trigger um, regarding pa patriotism, nationalism and erasure. And I wonder what mixed urban or blended urban peoples and um, what their bodies tell about and how they influence learning spaces and culturally centered pedagogies, especially. So I end with my responsibility as an indigenous researcher. So to be clear, I need to be clear about why I identify as Southern Ute. It's my responsibility. Framing my identity as Southern Ute honors my tribal connection and my agency to reclaim our relation to our tribe when my father could not. I need to be mindful, it's my responsibility, be mindful of who, with whom I use the survivor framing of my story to minimize misunderstanding or othering that I may inadvertently generate when offering details about my lived experience. 
Uh, it's my responsibility to be aware of my need, my own need for ongoing healing associated with questions about blood quantum, tribal citizenship, so that I may receive the questions without judgment, but instead as an opportunity to continue my healing work. So I now receive or I try to receive the questions as a gift to continue to unpack the emotions around this, around these pain points. And I practice loving the question, which will aid in guiding me to an ever emerging response that honors my um, story. So thank you. I know I went over my time a little bit. Thank you, Shannon. Thank you very much for that interesting presentation. I'm delighted. We can now take questions. Uh, and Dr. Gonzalez Miller will take questions. Um, I'm going to start out we, with uh, one question here. <clears throat> How can your research help teachers to do a better job in relation to Native students? Um, my research can help teachers. So how can my research help teachers do a better job in terms of, um, what was the second part, in relating to Native students? In relation to Native students, in teaching Native students, in, in communicating and helping. Yeah, so, so I think what hopefully my research shares is to, is to unpack that, unpack that question a little bit more and to say, are we talking about Native students? Are we talking about Native, sharing Native stories? Are we talking about in classrooms? Under what circumstances? Is this a history course that we're going to talk, share Native stories? And in that way, um, what I would want or hope that my research would suggest is that there's a complexity. Let's move, think about moving beyond the stereotype of the reservation Indian, or at least trouble that notion when it comes up and that native people are much more complex than that um, and talk about urban Indian and talk about us being in the present um, and in the future and what we contribute, what we can contribute. And then the other part of unpacking that is understanding who's in the classroom or who's in the space. How do we talk about, we don't want to talk about people um, like one of the storytellers said that you're telling my story without knowing that I'm here in the space. So I hope my research informs teachers to think about how they um, might raise questions about sharing stories of who you are so that you can welcome and identify uh, people that um, are native in your spaces that may not meet that physical um, presence that helps you to identify them. Thank you. Um, it, we have a couple more questions. Um, here's uh, one. Uh, what kinds of events cause Native people to be disconnected or disenrolled from their tribes? And what are the implications for students today? Briefly, so, I know you could probably write a whole dissertation and two, two or three, four books on it. Uh, but yeah, what but I think it essentially can really be narrowed down to removal um, for at least for me. And that's my experience. So for particularly for a boarding school, um, survivors that is can be particularly troubling um because in my case my father going so young to the boarding school he lost connection with his family the the part of the process of being in the boarding school is you're disconnected from your siblings you're not you're not to speak your language you're not just you know have the comfort of your siblings so 
the, the children are separated. So my father wasn't able to, to have that support and have those stories. And then since he was so young, really was disconnected from his family. Um, later in life, he was able to connect with some of the siblings, his sisters, but um, we've been unable to trace. We know who my grandfather is, but we've been unable to make that connection. My sister's done actually most of the work to be able to be tribally enrolled. And that's for me in particular, so I don't, can't express, I don't know what everybody's experience is, but it's the removal from our tribes, from our tribal places to other places that create the problem. So my father is originally from, I don't even know the city he was born in. I do from research, I don't know from him telling me. He's from Southern Colorado. The Southern Ute Reservation is at the very, um, it's at the Southwest corner of Colorado. And he was taken to Denver, which he always said is where he was from. And that is about a 400 mile car ride or 400 miles from the Southern uh, Denver to Southern Colorado to Denver. It's about a four hour um, car ride. And I'm not sure how long by train. There was a rail that, a rail, um, rail that went from that area up to Denver, which is how I'm sure they transported the children. But removing the children from their families is a way of um, disconnecting our tribal and being able to be tribal and enrolled. And I have to be okay with that. I have to not yearn for that um, because this is my story. And so that's how it affects me today. All right. Um, I have an interesting question here. Um, the person writes, I really appreciated you listing your responsibilities as an indigenous researcher. Do you think that naming and listing responsibilities would be important for non-Indigenous researchers and teachers, especially when working with Indigenous people, culture, knowledge, experience? Responsibilities as a settler. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think as I, as I reflected in preparing this presentation um, that my, my research was, and my responsibility as an Indigenous emerging indigenous scholar is to make sure that I am attending to the protocol of an indigenous research methodology. That's, a, and it's very clear and explicit. And so it's more, it's as much about that it is, as it is my findings. And so therefore I think it is important for me to share my responsibilities of why I'm doing this work. It also then allows people to connect to me or find a place in where they can share their story with me um, in terms of understanding how I am in this process. So I do think um, that it would be something that would be interesting for all people to think about what your responsibilities are for the reacher. It's a, it's a very um, deep, reflective, and reflexive process. <laughs> Uh, thank you so much. Um, I think we're about out of time here. Um, haven't been able to answer all the questions, but we're very grateful to you, Shannon, for your very interesting presentation. I'm delighted that you could share with us today. Um, thank you. I'm, um, please join me for with giving her a, a virtual round of applause. Um, and we would like to thank the College of Arts and Sciences, especially Clara Davison, Maddie Kerma, and Jade Lack, and Nick Breifogel. Uh, and once again, thank you to our audience for your excellent questions and your ongoing connection to Ohio State. Stay safe and healthy, and we hope to see you next time. Thanks.